Welcome to Mind and Soul Matters. I'm Farah Feeney. Through conversations with everyday people, Mind and Soul Matters aims to broaden our understanding of mental health and spirituality and to deepen our insights into the challenges and meaning of our lives. We have heard the cliché that money doesn't buy happiness. However, a well-documented study from Princeton University showed that money can indeed buy happiness, but plateaus at approximately $75,000 a year. And more recent studies have found that happiness increases with reported income and continues to rise well beyond that point. I am excited to be talking to Collis Tade, founder of Invato, one of the most successful and profitable Australian startup digital marketplace companies. Collis grew up in Papua New Guinea, moved to Australia to study, met his wife Cyan, and together with their best friend founded Invato from their garage, which today is valued somewhere in the hundreds of millions of dollars. I'm fascinated to find out how mega wealth impacts a person's day-to-day life, children, and happiness. And are wealth and spirituality mutually exclusive? Welcome, Collis. It's great to have you on Mind and Soul Matters. Thanks, Farah. Thanks for having me here. When did you realize you were going to be super wealthy and what impact has this huge amount of wealth had on your life? Realization, I think, definitely came gradually. Uh, you know, we started a company together, myself, my wife, my best friend, many years ago. And at first, you know, our aspirations were just boy, wouldn't it be great if like it would pay a salary? Like it wasn't that we set out. Um, thinking, hey, let's try to to make a lot of wealth, and so I think you know initially uh, there was a there was a point where I was like, wow, we we're getting paid. This is this is amazing. And then after a while, there was like, oh, we're we, you know we actually have the possibility of a dividend that would be quite substantial. And uh, I can remember my dad saying, you know, you should make sure you get a house. A house is important. You need a house. And so that was like an early focus. But then gradually over time, I think as the business grew and grew, the the I guess the realization dawned that maybe this was going to be more than just a house, so to speak. And I think that uh, there's obviously a lot of enablers that happen uh, when you come into wealth. So I think there's there's a lot of things you don't have to worry about as much. And those things were useful for me in the fact that I was working a lot. So, you know, we could have cleaners to come. I, mm. I remember the first time we hired a cleaner thinking, wow, they're so much better than me. I'm not actually that great at cleaning, it turns out. And so that that was helpful because then there was more time to work. That was why it was helpful. And then, you know, eventually we had children and both San and I were working. And so we had to hire a nanny so that we could continue to work. And so I think for a long time, I guess the things that wealth opens up were a little bit more about how did they enable us to work more rather than what else did they open up? And 
which is a strange sort of realization, remembering that at this point in my life, I have now stepped back from that company. But also one of the things that's happened as I've stepped away is I've had enough space to start to see, you know, you said like, uh, when did you realize and what impact? I, I think that's that realization, I suppose, dawns a little more when you have the space to choose what you're going to do. So where before, I guess I was in a mode of just coping. I was working, working on a company, just holding on, just trying to get through. Since I've stepped away and we've hired a CEO, I now have the space to choose and the realization that that's an enormous privilege. Not everybody steps away from a job and then goes, what could I do or what should I do? And has a huge scope of possibilities uh, in front of them. But also just the space to realize that this is a huge privilege and an odd privilege, quite a strange position to be in. And definitely sometimes I think, oh, this is weird. How did this happen? Mm. Did it have any impact on your lifestyle other than just outsourcing things? Just definitely like less worry. You know, like I think I, I remember worrying a lot about money long before this, this particular stint of my life. I guess I can remember stressing and having anxiety about money or lying in bed in the middle of the night and trying to trying to make sums work thinking oh you know we've got to pay that credit card bill and then how am I going to make this and like just endlessly you know hyper unproductively adding up numbers and that all went away and that's a that in itself is this huge privilege like uh, you know you've, you've said that there's this study about how a certain amount of wealth has mm. a real tangible benefit yes. on a person's happiness and I definitely think that's the case there is tangible things that happen when you don't need to worry about money and there's definitely like one of those is a little bit less stress. Um, I think it can open up time. In my case, I just use that time for more work. You know, the possibility of saying, well, instead of spending my time cleaning, someone else will be paid to come and clean. That is a, a privilege to open up some new time that you could use on something else. So I think early on, mostly the benefit was just those things, which mm. uh, frankly, I don't think you, you need to achieve monumental wealth to start to realize those benefits. When you get to, you know, the millions, does it come with extra stress and pressure and burnout and anxiety? Is there any negatives or any downsides to huge amounts of wealth? Yeah, I mean, I, so I definitely experienced a lot of burnout in relation to my work uh, in that I, I think I just went too far and, and I would have a lot of anxiety related to work. Uh, towards the end of my time as CEO, I would like a, a, a weirdo. I have a chart on my wall that I still have today. Each week I chart things like, you know, have I done yoga this week and how many times and things like that. Um, but one of the things I decided to start charting was my anxiety. Like had I had some kind of anxiety attack or some kind of uh, anxiety related episode. And after a while it was just, you know, every single week would have a check next to it. And that was one of the... And did you have anxiety before this huge amount of wealth? Or was anxiety something that came with high... Honestly, I think the anxiety came more as a response to the work pressure. And I think, you know, with, with the company, it had grown to hundreds of people. So there was, uh, I think when I left, there was six or 700 staff and um, there's you know, millions of users. And I think those things bring pressure uh, and uh, I guess anxiety to do a good job. I, my, my feeling was always that I needed to be responsible and that... Uh, you know, there's more people whose livelihood depends on decisions I make being thoughtful, considered, I guess, the right decisions. So I think that was that was kind of anxiety-inducing. I think I also felt a bit of general 
pressure to just do a good job of where, you know, I've, I've ended up in this uh, oddly privileged position to, do, to like to not capitalize on it just would seem really wasteful. Uh, like to, you know, uh, to, to be, it's like you've, you've been put at the starting line of this Olympic race. Well, you should run a good race. Like you don't want to, you don't want that to be the day that you're like, Oh, I'm just going to phone it in. So I think that just brought a lot of anxiety, but I don't think it was related to wealth because if it was, then I think I would continue to have those feelings of anxiety. Whereas since I've stepped away from work, a lot of that has really come down. I think you asked about what is the, are there negative aspects to coming into a lot of wealth? I think they're, can be. I think that like there are certainly a lot of dangers, I would say, that come with wealth. And uh, like for me, I think a lot of it is around your ego. Because mm-hmm. I, I think that, I mean, obviously I don't know what how other people's minds work. I know that in my own mind, ego is something that's been there long before coming into wealth. And, you know, it's that sort of uh, persistent or insidious kind of voice that wants to tell you that you're you know, you're special or you're important or like that's... You're successful. You're successful. And that's right. So once your success comes into things or wealth, and I assume it's the same with fame or power, I think it's, it's, like, this, it's like a little fire of ego is always burning. And I assume it burns in everybody's mind somewhere. And there's probably some, some value to ego. And, you know, uh, I'm sure, uh, I, I I'm not a psychologist, I'm sure there's some psychological benefits to having a healthy sense of uh, confidence and self-esteem and what have you. But I, I think of it as like a, a small fire. And as long as it's, you know, kept limited in a sort of humble way, that's okay. But for me, wealth is like throwing petrol onto this fire. It's because it's all of a sudden the world starts telling you, hey, you're special or important. And I, I mean, in, in kind of like odd little ways, like, you know, I'll give you some examples. You think about things like if you fly and you decide to upgrade yourself to business class and you get on the plane and they make every single person go past these like business class <laughs> seats and they're bigger and they're more plush. And you're like, oh, obviously these people must be important. <laughs> and you're like, you know, sometimes like I would show up a little bit late to a meeting and people would be like, oh, don't worry, it must be so busy. I'm like, is it that or am I just discourteous? Have I just been discourteous? And just because I have a particular job, it's still just just it's like a lack of courtesy, but because of that position, then you feel like you're, like you're, you're absolved of it. Or one day someone said to me, you know, I always remember joining the company and uh, on my first day, you held the door open for me. And that just really stayed with me that the CEO opened the door for me, which is lovely. What a lovely story. But like, let's not like, <laughs> you know, too ahead of ourselves. I open a door. Like, I'm sure you've opened a door for someone. Everybody opens doors for people. That's fine. It's like a normal activity. But I think there's this uh, thing that because of a particular position or status or wealth, that somehow that means more. And I think that that's the petrol on your ego. That's the, mm. the fuel that will let your ego go, yeah. You're somehow more special or more important. And to me, that's the probably the, the great downside of wealth is that that is, a, in my mind, a very slippery and dangerous slope that leads to 
in some way, most of the evils of the world, I think, come mm. from times where people, individuals, or even whole societies start to think that maybe because of circumstance or history that they are somehow better than others. You know, in the context of wealth and religion, I think the history of religion has a lot of almost veneration of poverty, you might think, right? Like there's this idea of like being a monk is like a really sanctified thing. You leave behind your possessions and things. And I think for me, I often think of it as essentially like a, a, a simple way of thinking of it is when you make a humble life, then you naturally feel more humble. People treat you in a more humble way. And I think that's broadly a very healthy way to be treated. I think there are dangers in wealth or power and probably fame where people start treating you a little differently. And if you're not careful, you mistake that for reality when it is just a social construct. Yeah. And it is definitely a social con construct, isn't it? Because our society has moved towards this concept of valuing status, money, power, and we think that if someone has those things, mm. then they are more important. And this is where this concept of can wealth and spirituality coexist. And I think it's really interesting what you've shared, because in my mind, your story is an example of where wealth and spirituality can coexist, because you have come across huge amounts of wealth, but you are very mindful that that doesn't define who you are. I think that spirituality and wealth surely can go hand in hand. I mean, I, th I certainly feel in, in our faith, in the Baha'i faith, that we are told that they can and that uh, material means are an important way of contributing to social progress and that in our writings, uh, you know, Baha'u'llah tells us that we should live modestly and not impose hardship on ourselves and enjoy a pleasant life. But we are also told that that's not the point, though. That's not the purpose. Like one of my favorite quotes comes from the Baha'i Hidden Words. And the Hidden Words, I mean, first of all, what a great title, right? Like, you know it's going to be very interesting already. <laughs> what are these Hidden Words? And the Hidden Words are, are, are written in these very short meditative little pieces where Baha'u'llah is almost uh, giving us, I guess, the wisdom of uh, God speaking to, to humanity. So as opposed to a prayer, you know, prayer is like us asking God for things. This is God telling us things. And the very first hidden word in the Baha'i writings, um, it's like, my first counsel is this, possess a pure, kindly, and radiant heart. And for me, this is very interesting because the, first of all, it's, it's the verb possess, which when we think about possessing things, we typically think of material things, like what are the possessions that we might have? Uh, the next thing that I always think about it is that it's the first thing. So of all the things that are to be said in these hidden words, and there's quite a lot of things that are said in the hidden words, this is the first thing that Baha'u'llah tells us is this is what we need to do to have a kind and radiant heart. And then the other thing that I always think is it's not possess a, a great house, a nice car, maybe a bundle of Bitcoin. It's like possess a pure, kindly and radiant heart. That's that's the goal and that's where we need to be. When I think about wealth and spirituality, it's not that, that the two can't go together. It's, it's not oil and water or anything like that. I think it's, it's much more just not letting wealth cloud out spirituality. But I think that that can go for anything in this, in this kind of material world. Like anything can cloud out our, the time or focus or energy or priority we give to spiritual things. And I think that's why it's important to have something like a council to remember that this is the first thing we need to be doing. If we don't do anything else, we need to do that. And certainly when I think about 
my life, I, I, I try to think, well, it's, it's not that there's no value to worldly things. It's just that they're, they're not more important than trustworthiness or mm. kindliness or uh, faithfulness or humility. Those things are more valuable, more important. And if, uh, you know, if we can have both, great, have both. But if we can only have one, I'd, I'd much rather be trustworthy and poor than wealthy and untrustworthy. Mm. And I guess in some ways you've already started touching on this, but how do you think your values, Collis, as a Baha'i, for example, one of the teachings being the elimination of extremes of wealth and poverty, how do you think these teachings have impacted your decisions on how you ran your company and ultimately some of your life choices? Mm-hmm. It's a very interesting one. The uh, the Baha'i concept, the, uh, the eliminations, and I don't think it's just the <laughs> just a high concept the, the i'd say even the societal concepts that the the extremes of wealth and poverty need to be eliminated is awkward when you wake up and you're like oh no <laughs> i'm the extreme <laughs> the, i'm in that little class of people and I, I tend to tell myself look this is something that i don't i personally don't believe that's like should have happened society should not be constructed in such a way that this could eventuate however it has eventuated and I think that, you know, it'll continue to eventuate for people for until such time as society changes, you know, our sort of practices around whatever it is, capitalism, taxation, society. I don't know what the answers are. I don't pretend to have those. All I know is that I, I, I don't believe that an extreme of wealth is a good thing. However, when you wake However, up... However, you are in that category. That's right. When you wake <laughs> yes, up and you're like, right. oh, I'm in this category. Awkward. But that's, that's, that's interesting because it shows you didn't set on this path with that goal in mind. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, that's true. No, I did not. Mm. Uh, certainly, I think the... But in, you're here now. But yeah. That's right. yeah. <laughs> so, and I think the, the thought I always have is that that just places more responsibility to do a good job. I think like, so one of my North stars is, is to ask myself, uh, how would I want someone like me to behave if I wasn't me? So if I was, if I placed myself into someone else's shoes and some wealthy person was sitting across from me, what would I want that person to be like? What would I want that person to be spending their time on? What would I want that person to be thinking about? How would I want them to behave to me? Um, and then I, I just sort of asked myself, like, well, how can I be those things? Not that I manage it all the time, but, you know, if I was not me and I just saw someone who was fantastically wealthy, I'd think, well, gosh, I hope that they're busy thinking about, you know, like charitable things, philanthropic pursuits. Uh, like I'd hope that they'd be putting their money to work on on things that matter and not just stuff that they feel like doing. And so I think that's part of it. I'd, I'd see someone wealthy and think, well, I hope they don't think that makes them better than me. Mm-hmm. And so I think, yeah, I don't think it makes me better than anyone else. So I, it's, it's kind of important that I, I don't ever let that get in the way. And so I think it's a, quite a helpful lens. And I think that's one aspect of it. And I th- guess the, uh, the other is just, I think for Baha'is, we believe that uh, economic life is uh, just another avenue for the expression of spiritual qualities. Like in, in many ways, every aspect of one's life can be the expression or the, the arena for the expression of spiritual qualities. And I think economic life is no different and not just for the super wealthy. The other day I was speaking to someone who had visited at some point in their past a chicken farm, a, a farm for eggs. And uh, he was talking about how horrific the conditions are for uh, caged hens 
And, you know, that's like a, a thing that we see in our supermarkets every day. And at, like at most levels of wealth, I think you get to choose, like, do I want caged eggs or free range eggs? And it's like a, it's like a tiny choice that you make with your economic activity that has a impact beyond you. Now, not, obviously not everyone can make that choice. And I wouldn't begrudge anybody who was in a position where they're like, well, hey, I just need to put food on my table. Then sure, like, you know, you do what you need to do. But I think for most people, mm. most of the time, we're in a position where we can make economic choices which have uh, impact. And certainly as Baha'is, we are told that we need to be mindful that all of our decisions leave a trace. And you sort of ask yourself, well, what are the traces of the things I do, the places I go or the things I spend my time on or money on? And I think for me, thinking uh, from the lens of, someone with a lot of wealth, then I think, okay, well, what are the spiritual qualities that can be expressed in this kind of arena of life? And I think that, you know, what does is, what is wisdom look like when you are trying to choose how to spend wealth? What does humility look like if you are wealthy? What does uh, justice look like? What does And what are the, some of the answers you come to? Like, yes. What does it practically look yes. like? You know, when you have a lot of wealth, you must put it to work on something, right? You have to invest it into something, mm -hmm. speaking plainly. Like you, at the very least, you've left it in cash in some bank account somewhere, right? And there was a moment where I suddenly realized, wait, like, you know, what are we investing in? We'd hired a financial advisor and the financial advisor would periodically put things to us like, okay, well, we're going to put some money into this fund. It's like a mortgage-backed security and I was like, oh, wait, mortgage-backed secure. I feel like I've heard about that. Wait, isn't that the thing that brought down the whole global financial crisis? <laughs> Anyhow, I'm sure that that particular mortgage-backed security was totally fine. But there was this moment when I, I and I can distinctly remember it being about this mortgage-backed security thing, that I was like, what are we investing in? And shouldn't our investments have the same coherence with our values as everything else in our lives? And so we decided... All investments, to the extent that we could, would have some kind of impact on climate change. Whereas Cyan was like, I feel like the environment's an important pressing issue and a huge like uh, topic that's going to affect all of humanity. We should like make all of our investments tilt that way. So if there is a um, you know a bond to buy, we will buy green bonds. If there is a mm -hmm. company to invest in, we would only look for companies that are having some kind of impact. Uh, on climate. And we've gotten to the point where the vast majority of our portfolio is now uh, oriented that way. So it has an active impact lens. So that was an early decision. And then there's uh, philanthropy. Like I think it's important that when you come into a lot of wealth that you are dispersing it back into the community. And so for us, we decided we would focus a lot on First Nations uh, social entrepreneurs, so uh, people from an Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander background who are working to improve the the communities they live in, and you know a lot of that is just I think well for a few reasons. One, we all the wealth we've accomplished was on Aboriginal lands. This is a country that uh, I think has brought us and a lot of other people a lot of prosperity. So it makes logical sense to I think think that way. Uh, another is just for me. Uh, I often feel that. Uh, First Nations people and First Nations culture is the soul of the country. And, you know, it's, it's like we're playing a game, we're playing a basketball game, and the star player of the team is on the bench half the time. And, uh, you know, they're, they're not out there in the starring role. And more than that, it's like the, the player who founded the team. That's how I, I often think conceptualize mm -hmm. the First Nations people of this country. It's like this is the people who, who put this whole thing on the map and 
they they're the star player but they're not in that position at the moment and they will be one day i'm confident that if you could fast forward into the future that's where you'd see the first nations culture that taking its rightful place in australian society and so for me i think that's an important thing to spend time on and it's a it's a part of our society and our culture and so uh, obviously not being from an aboriginal background uh, i and neither is cyan neither of us feels that we know what is the right thing to do in this space and so we decided philanthropically we would start a charitable trust that focuses on backing social entrepreneurs who come from an aboriginal background to focus on issues in their communities we live in the northern territory and so there's a lot of youth justice type issues but you know there's all sorts of broader things i think when you look into any space you quickly realize it's it's not so simplistic and so we try to back a lot of different things so that's the philanthropic side of course as a bahai there are ample opportunities to put material means to uh, spiritual ends by contributing into our community um, but i think hopefully that gives you a sense mm. uh, i suppose the last thing i'll say on it is just that uh, material means i think can also open up time and once you have the luxury of time you ask yourself well where will i spend that time you know you can spend time on anything and i i i wouldn't judge what anyone else's decisions are on where they spend their time but for me that's like i guess when you think about means you tend to think about like well what are you spending your money on but like one of the outcomes is what are you spending your time on mm-hmm. and so for me a lot of my time as you would know goes onto a bahai project called bahai blog but some of it is of course into philanthropy or climate investing or what have you Mm, wonderful. And before we finish off because this is an area I'm particularly interested in is uh, impact of wealth on children. Can you share with us what you have found or what you've observed the impact of wealth on your children on your two boys and how you manage that? Mm, yeah, well I mean my kids are you know they're, they're not grown up yet. It's a work in progress just like my own life. So I, I certainly wouldn't pretend to have all the answers on any of these topics, but it is something I we think about a lot because you know you do worry like any parent you worry about your kids and like I think any parent worries about whatever the relevant things are for their children in our case sometimes they worry about what is the impact of wealth an early thing that I think came up for us was the realization that you know we used to live in Melbourne and I feel that we lived in a little bit of a privilege bubble I think it's quite easy in a large city to end up living in kind of like a privilege bubble you know you you can end up living and working and being near people who have similar levels of wealth to you maybe think like you maybe even look like you like i think those things are unhealthy as is the the way i think of it i think it's unhealthy if society becomes too stratified how do you get a broad exposure to things and you can start to mistake the idea that everybody else has those same opinions or has that same level of wealth and the bahai writings were told that wealth is commendable only if everyone is wealthy and so mm-hmm. you know that's what I, i always remember this is this is great if everybody else was wealthy which they're not so i guess you know like let's like put a huge grain of salt on the value of the wealth that we have and so uh, we decided we would get out of melbourne not that you couldn't like live in a more cross-cutting cross-section of society in melbourne but for us we were ready to move for various reasons and and uh, we left to darwin and one of the reasons was so that our children would grow up in a society that was more cross-cutting that they would have more exposure to more types of people from more backgrounds and you know it's not that we can go somewhere and suddenly not be wealthy we're going to be the wealthy people wherever it is that we go and that's okay i think it's important to accept 
what one is for now. Like, you know, maybe tomorrow that won't be true anymore. But for now, that's what we are. I think it's it's more about being a good version of that. And uh, I, I think for me, being a good version of that and for our kids to see that we're a good version of that is important to be in a place where it is more cross-cutting and they grow up in a world where they don't think everybody's wealthy or that everybody has a sports car, which is something one of my sons once said to me at their old school, like, why don't we have a sports car, Dad? Everyone has a sports car. And I was like, no, they don't. <laughs> that is simply not a true fact. And so I think uh, making sure that they have that exposure. And, you know, you can zoom out to, to a sort of more, like, we, we live in Australia. That means almost by definition virtually everyone in Australia is globally wealthy. And so I think as Australians, it's great that Australians like to travel because we get out there and realize, okay, not everyone is living in the same sort of privileged way that we live. What does that mean for us as Australians for our responsibility to the world? I have the same sort of feelings that I want our children to grow up with. It's just like, well, what are our responsibilities? Not everybody lives in the same circumstances. And you know, hopefully they get that. I spoke a long time ago to someone more along the journey of these things than me. And one of the pieces of advice he gave me was to not pretend that you're not wealthy with your kids, not to hide things, to have open, clear, transparent conversations and to ensure that through your actions, you are demonstrating where your values are. So it's one thing to say, oh, no, no, we value whatever, kindness, humility, but then by your actions, praise, things related to material possessions or whatever it is. I think that sends a very clear message to children or really to anybody about what's it's like the values you espouse versus the values you mm. actually have. And so very mindful of that, of like, okay, well, how do we make sure that we are living the things we believe, demonstrating those things to our children, that they grow up with the proper understanding of the value of wealth, that it is a useful thing, but it's not actually important and that given the option they should always opt for spiritual qualities over wealth and then having it transparent so that they don't grow up one day and go that was kind of weird i thought we were one thing and then we were another and like why were like that this almost sounds a bit hypocritical to you know my kids are still young so like these conversations are very qualified the way that we speak about them but it means that we can have conversations about how important it is that they think about philanthropy or that responsibility or charity or, you know, mindfulness about investing, like all of those things they can grow up with. And, you know, hopefully when they mature, they have those lessons deeply embedded. Hopefully. Mm. You know. Paul, thank you so much, Collis. I've really enjoyed oh, uh, listening to you, having these, uh, this conversation. And I can absolutely vouch that I've had the, the privilege of working with you on a project on Baha'i Blog together. And vouch that you are humble, down to earth, such a great guy, and really an example that wealth and spirituality can coexist and how you apply your Baha'i teachings to the life that you live. Oh, Thank you very kind. much. It's been lovely having you here. Thank you for having me on here. I'd also like to thank our listeners. You can continue to support us by sharing your favourite episode with a friend and following Mind and Soul Matters on social media and on your preferred podcast app. You can also listen to episodes on our website, mindandsoulmatters.podbean.com. For any comments, email mindandsoulmatters at gmail.com. Look forward to your company next time.